in just a few minutes. We'll be in the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, so a lot of my preacher friends were changing their sermons and this sort of thing in light of current events and I was like, well, I'm not. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. We're just going to keep on going through our book. But uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 because I believe this speaks to current events. So. Reader's Digest uh, once told the story of a woman who worked for the Internal Revenue Service who at times had to communicate with delinquent taxpayers. On one occasion, she called Anchorage and was patched through to a ham operator in the Aleutian Islands. Two hours later, the ham operator raised the taxpayer's home base and from there reached him at sea with his fishing fleet. After she identified herself as being with the IRS in Utah, there was a long pause. And then over the static from somewhere in the North Pacific came, ha, ha, come and get me. <laughs> there are many people that when it comes to God's warning of his judgment, they're like that fisherman. They, they scoff at it. They usually think one of two things. Either it is never going to happen because it has not happened yet, or if it does happen, they will be okay. There are very few of them that uh, will openly be bold enough to scoff at God and the coming judgment, but they do so practically by living in ways that indicate they believe they will indeed never stand before God's judgment. And it's so foreign to them that, that it never even affects how they live. Right before Peter is about to die, there are several false teachers that are plaguing the church. And they're doing so by scoffing at this idea that Christ will one day return and judge the whole world. And at the root of their scoffing was the fact that they were living for their own lust. And Peter stated this in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, that they had eyes full of adultery and they entice others with their fleshly desires and their sensuality. In 2.18, uh, he talks about it even further. And when people who profess to know Christ decide that they're going to pursue their own lusts, their own passions, they end up having to invent some sort of doctrinal loopholes so that they can justify their sin and then satisfy their conscience. And so these false teachers were scoffing at the idea that Jesus was going to return in power and glory and one day judge the entire world. That these, these false teachers, they were what we would call smooth operators. They would do much like we see false teachers doing today. They would mix in some truth 
with some air so that the unsuspecting people would follow the whole package. They, they profess to know Christ as Savior and Lord. In uh, chapter 2, verse 20, we see that. And for a while, anyway, they gave the appearance of knowing the way of righteousness. Chapter 2, verse 21. They would join in the church life as if they were in full agreement with everything that was going on in the church. Chapter 2, verse 13. They were not living in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Instead, they were following their own lust while claiming to be free in Christ. In reality, they were slaves of corruption. Chapter 2, verse 19. Living for their sensual pleasures and their greed. Remember, last week, we saw Peter describes them as dogs returning to their own vomit or a pig going back to wallow in its own mire. In chapter 2, Peter exposes these false teachers for what they really are. And now, as a shepherd, as a pastor, Peter is urging the church not to follow after these scoffers who are heading for judgment. Four times he addresses the readers as beloved. He does this because he wants them to know that he cares for them. He also assures them that they have sincere minds. However, he wants to stir them up by way of reminder so that they would stand firmly upon God's word and not be deceived by these scoffers. Peter's message is straightforward. Despite scoffers scoffing at Christ coming again, God's word promises that he will indeed come again in judgment of the whole world. So, with that said, I would ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that, that Lord, it will penetrate our hearts and lives, and that I will somehow be able to do it justice this morning as we, as we use it and learn from it and apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak because your saints are listening. Speak to our hearts now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Throughout these verses, 
Notice that Peter's emphasis is entirely on God's word. He mentions it in verse 2 as the authoritative message that we must remember. He refers to it again in verse 5 and 6 as the means by which he created the world and brought the judgment of the flood upon the wicked. He refers to it again in verse 7 as a basis to which we know that there is a terrifying day of judgment that is to come. First thing I want us to notice this morning is when scoffers attack your faith, remember God's word. When scoffers attack your faith, remember God's word. Look at what Peter says in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, there are all kinds of debates as to what the first letter is, and there has even been debate as to whether or not Peter wrote this letter, or, or whether it's just someone that's posing as Peter who wrote it in the mid-second century. We dealt with this in the first message from Second Peter. I don't see why this first letter is not first Peter or why Peter did not write the sec uh, why Peter didn't write second Peter. Peter is like any other effective teacher though. He understands that repetition is a key to learning. So he writes these two letters to stir the believers' minds to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So it must be, we, we stirred. So when scoffers attack your faith, remember God's word, but we must be stirred to remember God's word. By implication, verses 1 and 2 are telling us that we do not need the so-called new truths. But instead, we need to be reminded of the old truth. The truth that we already possess, but we tend to forget it. It has become so easy for our thinking to get distorted by our godless culture that surrounds us and those who deliberately attack the truthfulness and the reality of the word of God. So let, let me give you an example of how this transpires even in our culture today. There, there are numerous examples, but here's an easy one. What is taught in schools and what the world receives as fact is that everything on this earth evolved by chance over hundreds of millions of years from pond scum that eventually turned into life and eventually all the life that we see around us came from that pond scum. Over hundreds of millions of years. Now, if you say, well, I believe um, in creation and I believe that the biblical account only ages the earth to be around 6,000 years old, then what happens? Well, the world mocks you. Well, you're dumb. You even have a brain in your head? They will say that you lack brains to figure things out. And when you face the constant bombardment by that mindset, it becomes easy to be lulled to sleep and believe at least some of that mindset. And this happens in our culture, all around our culture. We get lulled to sleep because of this constant bombardment of things that are not biblical. And so we need to be stirred up. This is the same word that is used when Jesus was awakened while he slept in the boat during the storm in Luke chapter 8. The idea is that we need to wake up. We need to be awakened to what God's word says. 
We need to dive into God's word. In his commentaries, John Calvin writes that even the godly who have some degree of biblical um, some degree of biblical learning will become dim and mentally rusty if they do not receive these constant reminders and warnings. This is why the church must have faithful teachers of God's word to stir God's people to remember the truth of God's word just as Peter is doing here. We must be stirred to remember God's word. Secondly, under that point, is we must remember the Old Testament prophets. We must remember the Old Testament prophets. So Peter tells us to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. That's a reference to the Old Testament prophets. When we read through the prophets, we notice that there are all kinds of warnings in them about this impending judgment on Israel and on the surrounding nations if they do not repent and obey God. Now, Peter says that we need to be stirred up to remember these repeating warnings and judgments, or these warnings about judgments. And this, this kind of seems like it's probably a good opportunity for me to stir you to read your Bible, to read your Bible as much as possible, to read your Bible repeatedly. Psalm 119, 160 tells us, the sum of your word is true. We need the entirety of God's word to give us balance. We don't, we don't get this pick and choose approach. Well, I'm going to pick this verse and this verse and this verse to try to prove my point. You wouldn't hear professing Christians say things like, well, I believe in a God of love, not of judgment, if they actually took the time to read their Bible. If they actually said, well, I'm going to submit to the sum of God's word, the whole of God's word. So we need to remember the Old Testament prophets. Thirdly, we need to remember the commandment of the Lord. We need to remember the commandment of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Peter doesn't specify which commandment as we're, as we're reading this. He doesn't tell us what commandment he's referencing. But he did use this, the same word in chapter 2, verse 21, when he said that false teachers had known the way of righteousness, but they had turned away from the holy commandment handed on to them. So it seemed that Peter then is talking about the ethical demands that stem from the gospel, which come to us through the New Testament's apostles. In Jesus, the rule of God became manifest in this world. And this manifestation of God's rule then brings with it a demand that people turn from their way and they submit to God's way, which is to obey the good news and submit to the way of life that it proclaims. Granted, this isn't what you typically are going to hear proclaimed in contemporary preaching, but this is still the, the message of the New Testament. One last thing here real quick. Look at verse 2 where it says, Lord and Savior. That is governed by one definite article in the Greek, meaning that it's the same person. The Lord and Savior are Jesus Christ. You, you might say, well, why is that important? It's important because you cannot separate Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord. If you, if you trust in him as your Savior, you must submit to him as your Lord. 
You don't get to say, well, uh, I received Jesus, but he's not going to be Lord of my life. That's not the way it works. And so Peter's opening comments in chapter 3 show us that we must remember God's word when scoffers attack your faith. When scoffers come and, and attack your faith, you must be driven to remember God's word. Second point I want us to see this morning. Scoffers scoff because they willfully ignore that God created the universe and judged the wicked in the flood. Scoffers scoff because they willfully ignore that God created the universe and judged the wicked in the flood. I gotta take a little bit of time to break down verses three through six for us, mainly because there's a lot of detail here for us and, and there's a lot to cover. So we have some subpoints, and then we have some subpoints to the subpoints. So it's gonna get serious. But anyway, that's my attempt at humor. Uh, God's word predicts that scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires and denying the promise of the second coming. God's word predicts that scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires and denying the promise of the second coming. In verse 3, Peter says, knowing this first of all, this means that it's of first importance. So Peter wants us to have an advance warning that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. So when are the last days? You ever hear people say that? Well, we're in the last days. Well, we are in the last days. Because we've been in the last days ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The entire time from Christ's resurrection until Christ comes again is referred to as the last days. And so during this time, those who know Christ as Savior and Lord should be living in the hope and expectancy of his bodily return to power and glory. But we also should not be surprised when scoffers come and decide that they're going to attack biblical truth, including the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The early church lived with this expectancy that Christ would return in their time. That's how they lived their life. It is no wonder that they lived that way since 260 chapters of the New Testament have around 300 references to Christ coming again. There's only four books that lack any specific reference in the New Testament to Christ coming again. Galatians, Philemon, and 2nd and 3rd John. This letter by 2 Peter is dated around AD 60. And already, when Peter is writing this letter, skeptics are disillusioned that Christ had not returned yet. I mean, look how many years we are later. No wonder people are like, well, where's he at? If he's really coming, why hasn't he come yet? And some were so bold as to attack the very idea openly that he would ever return. John Calvin makes the point, and I believe correctly, that you cannot take away the promise of Christ's return without destroying the very core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what John Calvin says. For when that is taken away, there is no gospel any longer. The power of Christ is brought to nothing. The whole of religion is gone. And then Satan aims directly at the throat of the church when he destroys faith in the coming of Christ. For why did Christ die and raise again, except that he may sometime gather to himself the redeemed from death and give them eternal life. 
There is a view that has gained some popularity called full preacherism. This view teaches that all biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled, including the second coming of Christ. And they say that was fulfilled in AD 70. Therefore, Jesus isn't coming again. And so many people uh, will use Matthew 24, 34 as a proof text for this view where Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. The problem with that view is that Jesus isn't coming again is, to be honest, it's heretical. It robs a Christian of any hope for a future. I agree with Calvin in that if we deny the promise of Christ's coming, then we actually destroy the gospel itself. So I want to briefly notice three things. First, scoffers will live according to their sinful desires. Scoffers will live according to their sinful desires. Chapter 2 gives us in great detail a description of false teachers living according to their sinful desires. And Peter mentioning it here means that he is speaking of the same group of people. Plain and simple, if you live this life to fulfill and pursue your own lusts, to be the one who amasses all of the best toys in this world, you do not want to believe in a future judgment. You have to do something to ease your guilty conscience. And so these men, these false teachers looked around. They saw that some people were wondering uh, uh, about the promise of Christ's return. And they're, they're saying, well, why hasn't this already been fulfilled? And so they capitalized on it by saying, well, he's not coming. Everything's just going as it always has been since the beginning of creation. And I've said repeatedly that sinful living results in false doctrine, and false doctrine will result in sinful living. Scoffers live according to their sinful desires. Secondly, scoffers charge that God's promises have failed attacking his honor. Scoffers charge that God's promises have failed attacking his honor. For anyone to say that any of God's promises have failed is to call God a liar. We may not understand why God does not seem to answer our prayers when they are in line with his will and therefore his glory. We may, we may not get it. We may not understand it. And that's okay. But I believe if we have a submissive heart, it's okay to bring complaints to the Lord when we're wrestling with questions of why and, and problems in this life. We see this all through the Psalms. They, they address God and they, they ask God why and they're wrestling with questions and they're, they're, they're super emotional. But we better not ever charge God with being unfaithful and assert that we are right and that God is somehow wrong. Because these false teachers dared to attack God's honor, they stood condemned. Thirdly, scoffers assume that God did not act in history to their heir. Scoffers assume that God did not act in history to their heir. These scoffers are what we would call deists. They claim that God created the world, but then God stepped back from the world and is no longer involved in the events of human history since creation. They use Christian terminology. They're familiar with Christian terminology, referring to a time when the fathers fell asleep, 
It's a reference to, to, to death as sleep. It's a distinctly New Testament way of saying that, uh, saying, uh, that Jesus took the sting out of death and that those in him do not die. They simply fall asleep. This doesn't mean that our soul sleeps until the resurrection, as Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But these false teachers were familiar with and used common Christian language to draw the naive in and to snare them uh, uh, into deism. Michael Green in his commentary says this, Had they been alive today, they would have talked about the chain of cause and effect in a closed universe governed by natural laws, where miracles almost by definition cannot happen. The idea that God would break into history and in judgment was not even possible for them. The first coming of Christ, therefore, could not have been an act of God. But Peter exposes their fallacy in noting that, they were, that there were two cataclysmic events in past history that point to the final cataclysmic judgment. So it's not that scoffers willfully ignore that God created the universe by his word and judged the wicked in the flood. Scoffers willfully ignore that God created the universe by his word and judged the wicked in the flood. Commentaries are divided on the translation of verses 5 and 6. The NSB translates it for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. The ESV puts it for they deliberately overlook this fact. It seems that the phrase is saying that in their desire to do away with future judgment, these men failed to see two huge interventions of God in past history, namely the creation of the universe and the flood. So let's look at that in just a little bit more detail. Scoffers willfully ignore God's authority as the creator of the universe by his word. Scoffers willfully ignore God's authority as the creator of the universe by his word. Peter says, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which repeatedly states, uh, and God said. All through Genesis, uh, the creation count, and God said. God's word is the effective power that brought the creation into existence. Psalm 33, 9 says about the creation, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It's not entirely, entirely clear what Peter means when he says the earth was formed out of water and through water, but we know he's referencing Genesis 1, where on the first day of creation, the earth was covered with water, and then on the second day, in Genesis 1, verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters, and God then divided the waters on the earth from the waters that were in the heavens, and this formed kind of this sort of vapor canopy over the earth. And then on the third day, God lifted up the land so that it was separated from the seas. It seems like Peter may be making the point that water, which was the agent that God predominantly used in his creation, God then used this same agent to judge the world in the flood. And so Peter is also making this point that scoffers are just ignoring the implications of the doctrine of God as a creator. They're just ignoring it. 
Just, it just, just didn't happen. You don't hear that much today, do you? The Bible repeatedly emphasizes the point that God created the world, including the people. And for this reason, he is the rightful Lord of his creation and the righteous judge of all those who do not submit to his lordship. Secondly, scoffers willfully ignore that God, by his word, destroyed the world by the Look at verse 6. Peter says, and that by means of these, this is a reference to both God's word and the water of the flood, how in the world could false teachers make the claim that everything had continued on just as if it was from the beginning? How could they do that? How could they say, well, well, it's just everything's the same since creation. How can they do that when God intervened directly and the most catastrophic judgment in human history. The lesson of the flood that was that God intervened into history. He stepped into the middle of history and judged the wicked. And therefore, there is a day coming when God will one day intervene again. And everyone who follows their own lust and does not repent and submit their lives to the Lord and Savior will face him when he comes again in judgment. That's the point of the flood. God stepped into history, judged the wicked, and he will do it again. Third, notice that scoffers scoff at the promise of Christ's coming because they willfully ignore the future judgment. Scoffers scoff at the promise of Christ's coming because they willfully ignore the future judgment. In verse 7, Peter again puts an emphasis on God's word. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the only New Testament passage, except chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 12, that states explicitly that the future judgment will be by fire. There are several Old Testament passages that, lead to, that allude to it, like um, Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16, that say this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword will all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Or Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, which says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In the New Testament, John the Baptist predicts that Jesus will burn up the shaft from the unquenchable fire. Paul predicts that second coming as when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Peter's point is that God is the creator of the universe by his very word. He spoke it and it happened. He destroyed the wicked in the flood by his very word. He didn't have to do anything. He spoke the flood into existence and it happened. And it is by his 
very word, God's word that we have in front of us, that he has warned us that he will judge the wicked in the future by fire. He will speak it and it will happen. And those who scoff at the second coming of Christ so that they continue in their own lusts are fools. They're fools. They're foolish of what God is doing. I want to conclude this morning with two applications that we must consider. First, if we drift away from the truth that God created the world by his word of power, then we're moving towards skepticism and sensual living. If we drift away from the truth that God created the world by his word of power, then we're moving towards skepticism and sensual living. Now, I'm not saying that you have to hold to a literal 24-hour day view of creation, even though I think that's the most obvious and best interpretation. I am saying that if you hold to a different view, you can't deny the miraculous power of God's spoken word in the process of creation. In other words, creation was a miracle of God's power. However he did it, it's a miracle of his power. And whenever he did it, it's a miracle of his power. And whenever we minimize the miraculous, whenever we say, well, that can't, there's no way that could happen. That's a drift towards skepticism. And skepticism undermines the authority of God's moral standards. Why do you think the world is the way it is today? Because we have no moral standards. Why do we not have any moral standards? Because of skepticism. There's no way God created this world. There's no way that it happened like this. There's no way that God is real. There's no way that God loves people. There's no way that God cares. There's no way that God this. There's no way, there's no way, there's no way. Become skeptical, and soon we just write God completely out of the equation, and therefore, what moral standard are we going to have? And where do the morals come from? They become made up. And then at that point, guess what? My moral standard may not be your moral standard. So who's to say which moral standard is right? That's the world we live in right now. Right now, that's the world we live in. There is no moral standard. Until I steal your, steal your money, then suddenly there's a moral standard. And we see this all through the world today. Just turn on the news, you see it. Somebody talking out one end of their mouth, pretending like they have a moral standard, when they obviously don't have a moral standard when it comes to other things. But with this thing, they have a moral standard. It's ridiculous. Secondly, if we drift from the truth that Christ is coming again to judge the world. In that case, we are drifting towards skepticism and sensual living. If we drift from the truth that Christ is coming again to judge the world, in that case, we are drifting towards skepticism and sensual living. We live in a tolerant culture that refuses to make any moral judgments on anything. 
except for what they deem to be morally permissible. And guess what? We reap the results of our own moral decay. Christians have minimized biblical truth that God's judgment will come. Some outright deny the eternality of hell. Others believe that God will, surely he's going to save everyone. And when we drift in that direction, that God is going to judge sin, it's a drift towards skepticism of God's word. And eventually, it's a drift towards more relativism. If you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, the bottom line has to be, what does God's word say? That's it. Bottom line. What does God's word say? I watched a friend of mine uh, post something on, on Facebook uh, the other day. Uh, he, he's a pastor. And he said, women can't be pastors. Oh, boy. You thought everything that was going on in the world caused a fight. Good grief. And I'm just reading through the comments, and, and somebody kept coming back, well, what about this person? What about this person in, in the Bible? And I just wanted to go and say, well, how many of them are pastors? None. But anyway, I didn't enter into his debate. What does God's word say? The bottom line for the Christian cannot, should not, Never should be what is culturally acceptable. That's not the question you ask. You know, well, what's culturally acceptable in the world today? Because there's a lot of things that are culturally, culturally acceptable. There's a lot of things that are culturally permissible. That's not the question. The question isn't, well, what do others think about this? Or what do others say about this? That is not the question. The question is, what does God's word say? God's word clearly states that God created the world by his word. God judged the world by his word at the flood. And God will judge all ungodly when Christ returns by his word. Therefore, we stand firm on the truths of the word of God and out of love. Out of love for our neighbors, not hatred, not bigotry, not anger, not anything else, but out of love for our neighbors and those that are around us, we warn them to flee the wrath that is to come. It's out of love. So, so what happens is Christians get accused, well, you, well you, you're homophobic and you're this and you're this and, and you must hate people. But it's the exact opposite. To hate them would be to say nothing that God's wrath was coming to wipe them out. That would be hatred. Love says, I love you. God has warned us. His wrath is coming. And if you're not a Christian, I plead with you. Flee the wrath that is to come. And how can you do that? You do that by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son. That you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not a, it's not a magic prayer. It's not that prayer that saves you, but it's your trust in Christ. 
you said that prayer, you want to know more, you said something like it, I want to follow up with you, that's that you come forward. If you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. You can do that in your pew if that's what you want. Word FAITH, 309-328-3488. Just allow us to, to follow up with you. In a minute, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to ask you to search your heart this morning. Truly ask yourself if you're drifting from God's truth. The truth that God created the world by his word of power. Because if you're drifting towards it, you're moving towards skepticism and sensual living to the point that you will have no morality to stand on. Secondly, ask yourself if you're drifting from the truth that Christ is coming again to judge the world. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, how are you going to tell others? And if you're drifting from that truth, then you're drifting towards skepticism and sensual living. You'll have no moral standard. You will become tolerant like the rest of the world, saying, oh, well, we can't, we can't say this or that. Don't drift from God's truth. If you need prayer, I'll be down front. You can always just slip me a note later. I'd be glad to pray for you, or you can hang around, and, and I'll pray with you later. You can send a text message to me, 9 and follow up with you. Let's close a prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. It speaks truth to us. God, I pray that as we've, we've gathered here this morning and as we've, we've listened to your word, God, it becomes so easy to, to drift away from the truth. We can turn on the news. We can look at social media. We can hear others talking in our ear. all attacking the truth of your word. We live in a morally, well, we live in a culture without morals, to be honest. Other than what someone else has deemed morally permissible. God, may we always be driven to your word not asking what the culture accepts, not asking what other people accept, but be driven to your word. What does your word tell us to do? Because that's what Peter is referencing. Always go back to God's word. Always go back to his word. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your word. And if you've spoken to us in a way that we need to respond, God, I pray that we would respond. We'd have the courage to do so. Say that we love you. Follow after you and everything that we have. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to come.